Welcome to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney, alongside my co-host, Matt Miller. Every business day, we bring you interviews from CEOs, market pros, and Bloomberg experts, along with essential market-moving news. Find the Bloomberg Markets Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and at Bloomberg.com slash podcast. So when I think uh, infrastructure plans, all I think about really is the Gateway Project, getting those railroad tunnels under the Hudson River so these tunnels that are there and 100 years old don't tumble in on me one day while I'm commuting. But there's a lot more to it than that. And a lot of folks think this is an opportunity for America to get smart with their infrastructure. Andre Brumfield, Cities and Urban Design Leader for Gensler, joins us. Andre, thanks so much for joining us here. Again, you know, people think about infrastructure, they think bridges and tunnels and roads. How should we be thinking about infrastructure in this country? So we're about to go on a pretty big spending spree. Well, good morning. Uh, first, uh, thanks for having me on. Uh, second, I think to at least address your question, I think this is an opportunity to think much bigger uh, than, than uh, you know, tunnels uh, and some of the obvious things that we see day to day. But if you look back in history, you think about the aspirations of Lyndon Johnson's Great Society programs in the 1960s, you know, or some of the successful elements of uh, President Roosevelt's New Deal program as related to PWA projects. I think this is our opportunity through the infrastructure bill to you know think about how we can actually have a lasting impact on a number of things that have been neglected over uh, the last 15 to 20, maybe even 30 years as it relates to roadways, uh, public transportation. You know, hopefully, I think if we look back in another 10 or 15 years, you know, we will know that this was not only money well spent and money well invested, but this could be a turning point of how we actually start to reposition a number of our cities. You know, the, the problem is, I think, a lot of people would agree that we need to do something about the infrastructure in the U.S. and would have no problem paying for it as well if they trusted the government to spend the money well. Isn't that a big concern? Doesn't the federal government waste a ton of money? Isn't there, even in America, a lot of corruption? Well, I think this is where, you know, and I know that uh, the Biden administration will be open to this, uh, which is, you know, really about transparency. And it really comes from, you know, not only at the federal level, but also at the state and the local level. I think when you talk about and you think about transparency through this process and how the money is invested and where it's invested, you know, I think the more that people are aware uh, and the more that people have a say in this or more that people actually understand how the monies are being spent, you know, that, you know, trust will get stronger uh, over time. So, you know, I think for me, this is not about criticizing at least, you know, um, how the money is going to uh, necessarily be uh, spent uh, in terms of, you know, distrust with the government. It's really more about, you know, how can we actually be creative and making sure that, you know, this infrastructure bill is really touching, you know, uh, the places in our urban and our uh, suburban environments, even our rural environments where it needs to be touching. You know, I just read the book on Robert Moses, the guy who effectively built modern New York City. Oh, yeah. And it, the just amazing, broker. the long-ranging impact that guy had. But a lot of good, but a lot of bad. Um, I'm thinking about the highways that cut apart neighborhoods all across New York City and kind of read you know, kind of redistricted, if, if you will, uh, neighborhoods that have been around forever. Going forward, you got to feel like mass transportation needs to be more ingrained or integrated into our infrastructure. Is that something you think has support? 
I think that's something that's critical. And, and you know, you can't uh, drop Robert Moses into power broker here in this short interview. I mean, that's going to take him. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Have you read the book as well, Andre? Oh, I mean, you know, that's one of the few books, uh, and if you haven't read it, for those who are listening, it's, it's a must-read. But uh, you, you have to allocate to a lot of time because it is a very big book <laughs> and a very yeah, long – it took me the entire summer on the beach. On right, yeah, and you almost have to jump around depending on what your sweet spot is as it relates to urban planning and the built environment. But uh, I think, you know, um, we, you know, to answer the second part of your question uh, – related to uh, infrastructure and public transportation. If we think about where we've been and where we currently are uh, with COVID uh, and public transportation and how people do uh, get around, what we can't do is slide back into or go deeper into an auto-dominated society, or at least how we actually move throughout our cities. Um, uh, if anything that we've learned at least in the last uh, two to three weeks uh, with uh, some of the latest uh, reports coming back on where we are in terms of climate change, and um, how that's impacting our built environment uh, and our world as a whole, we have to think about public transportation. And if you look at, um, you know, this is also not about rails. If you look at some of the great investment, I think that the city of Cleveland, for instance, has done over the past uh, seven, eight years, really expanding and implementing their bus, bus rapid transit system throughout their city. And this is about how not only you get people moving to different parts of the city, but how you actually get people who are underserved in, you know, um, underserved neighborhoods to employment centers without having to necessarily get in their car. And sometimes people don't have public transit or a car to, to get to the places of employment. This is about connecting, I think, you know, um, different employment centers, you know, through bus rapid transit, through other investment that's needed uh, in public transportation as a whole. So I think if anything that this bill will do, we'll start to not only address that in terms of, you know, getting beyond just, you know, uh, repairing of uh, streets and bridges, you know, but how do we actually think about mass transportation and where we actually need to kind of double down and invest? Because it's a long run, it's a long term investment that I know the next generation will benefit from, even though we can't fully realize it now. All right, Andre, thank you so much for joining us. We really appreciate it. Andre Brumfeld, cities and urban design leader, firm name is Gensler. Talking about, uh, you know, fiscal stimulus coming down. We're looking at some infrastructure uh, bill winding its way through Congress. Uh, Many, many billions of dollars uh, need to spend it, invest it wisely is the operative word here. We're going to have more coming up. This is Bloomberg. Now, the conference board's leading economic index rose 0.9% in July. Um, The estimate was for a gain of 0.7%. So, looks good, I guess. Let's bring in Adaman Ozeldrum. He's the director of economic research and a global research chair at the conference board. Um, What did we take from these numbers, Adaman? Uh, Good morning. Good to be here. Um, The LEI has been uh, rising uh, pretty strongly over the uh, last several months, uh, in fact, since last year. So all of that uh, really points to uh, strong growth, uh, a robust growth environment for the economy in the U.S., uh, at least uh, for the second half of the year. Ottoman, give us the what really drives this index uh, that a lot of investors really focus on. What are the key drivers? 
Sure. Uh, the uh, U.S. Uh, leading economic index has 10 components. Uh, these are all leading indicators that have uh, proven to help to anticipate major uh, business cycle recessions. So they uh, turn down ahead of the recession. And, you know, putting them all together in this index is giving us a clearer view of, uh, you know, where the risks lie in the economy. Um, and whether a recession uh, peak uh, turning point is approaching or not. So th uh, they are objective um, measures. Um, and in this case, you know, all 10 components rose in July. Um, and uh, these types of readings have been pretty common over the last few months. So it is uh, pointing to a pretty robust business cycle expansion unfolding. Although we get um, other indicators like well, housing starts is said to be a leading mm -hmm. indicator, and it was bad. The Consumer um, uh, Confidence Index from the University of Michigan was also quite rough. Um, are you starting to see things fray a little bit? Sure, and and there are indicators of uh, housing and uh, consumer expectations as part of the leading index as well, um, and uh, that's one of the advantages of looking at the summary measure like the leading index because you're not really looking at just one area, but overall uh, how the economy, the business cycle is doing. Um, so while the underlying trend uh, in the leading indicators is still positive and pointing to you know a good growth environment. Uh, there are some areas of uh, risk uh, that might uh, kind of uh, raise their heads. Um, so, uh, you know, we're watching sort of how the uh, the pandemic is evolving very closely. Uh, the economic sort of environment is still, uh, you know, highly dependent on, you know, how what happens with the Delta variant and uh, whether people are being, uh, you know, comfortable to uh, go back to uh, business as usual in a way and go back to, you know, um, uh, using those uh, in-person services, especially as, as we've been uh, predicting. Uh, so, um, you know, if the pandemic takes uh, a downturn, negative turn, um, affects confidence, um, uh, there, there would be some more negative impact. That's uh, something to watch out for as a, as a risk in the economy. And then the other area might be uh, that um, there is rising concern about inflation and uh, whether that might uh, you know, uh, lead central banks to uh, become more concerned and start to raise policy rates. And uh, there could be, of course, direct effects uh, on the economy uh, through mortgage rates uh, and other types of uh, economic activity. Talk to us about the labor market, Ottoman. We had another jobless claims number that came in, uh, you know, below 400,000, a little bit better than expected. How does that figure into uh, your index? Uh, yeah, again, uh, the uh, labor market is an important part of the leading indicators. Um, the uh, initial claims for unemployment is one of the components. Um, and in fact, it, it has been um, a very important uh, component uh, throughout the pandemic recession and the recovery. Um, and, you know, now we're starting to see uh, initial claims coming back to more normal levels uh, that we're used to seeing during expansions uh, and maybe, you know, further gains uh, from uh, unemployment claims is going to be uh, limited. Um, so I don't know, um, you know, the, the, the levels in claims that we were seeing uh, before 2020 
were unusually low. Um, and, uh, you know, during expansions, they tend to be around that uh, 250 to 350 range. Um, and, uh, you know, I'm not sure that I would expect uh, the, the claims to, you know, drive the leading indicators as much in the future as it has uh, throughout this recovery. All right, Ottoman, thank you so much for joining us. We always appreciate getting your thoughts on these important economic data points. Ottoman Azadrum, he is a director of economic research and global research chair at the conference board, uh, joining us on the phone, and we appreciate getting that. So, again, the leading economic indicator for the month of May uh, came in a little bit better than expected here. And uh, so in the crucial variable will be this Delta virus and when will it peak and when can we get to the other side of that? So a lot of folks are paying attention to that as they should, as well as to the vaccination rates, which are doing a little bit better. Well, we are 12 years into this bull market and investors are thinking about areas that may represent some value in a market that has some stretched valuations. Uh, that is a challenge increasingly for investors. Brian McCauley joins us now. He's a portfolio manager at Hennessy Focus Funds based in Arlington, Virginia. He has some thoughts here. So, Brian, again, 12 years into this bull market, uh, the market's doubled off of those March 2020 lows. What's an investor to do here with fresh money? Great. Yeah, I think that's really uh, the question of the day. And, um, y you know, we, we always approach investing with a long-term mindset. So we're trying to buy businesses for the next five and ten years. And so in today's environment, it is difficult to find attractive investments with that type of time horizon. You know, we've seen really tremendous price performance out of the technology sector over the last several years. Understandably so to some extent, um, but in our view, a lot of those companies require really aggressive growth assumptions to justify their current valuations. And so as we scan across the market and look for other opportunities, you know, we're finding opportunities in, I'd say, more mundane businesses that are not technology companies, but do have an important element of innovation to what they're doing. And so for us, we're finding opportunities and companies like CarMax and Allegiant Travel and RH um, that have restoration hardware? unique stories. Restoration, no. formerly known as Restoration Hardware. That's let, right. let, me, uh, let me start with CarMax because I, I think it's fascinating. Love the car business uh, industry. And I wonder why would you go with the retailer and not with a manufacturer? I look at you know, um, price earnings ratios on companies like Ford and Volkswagen, and we're only talking about five or six, not that it's ever been, you know, not that they've ever had really high valuations, but if you believe in the auto industry, why not the manufacturers? Well, it's a, it's a reasonable question. You know, our, our approach is what do we think this business is going to be worth in five years? What do we think it's going to be worth in 10 years? And that's a very difficult question for, us for the automakers. You know, they generally have relatively low returns on capital and returns on equity, so not naturally great businesses. In contrast, a company like CarMax does have a unique uh, value proposition, and it does have very strong returns on capital and equity. And so that means to us it's a good business that should create a lot of value over the long term. So we think they're going to be able to compound their earnings at a mid-teens rate for the next five maybe even 10 years. And from today's starting price valuation of about 
20 times earnings, um, you know, we think we're going to end up with a, you know, a mid-teens type rate of return per annum in the stock over those long-time horizons as well. Yeah, Brian, you know, it's interesting, CarMax, we had news today that Toyota is going to cut its production in September pretty significantly by 40% here. So some supply issues, there's just no cars out there for the retailers to sell. My guess is you, you think that's a, just a, a short-term blip into what is a, a better longer-term story? Yes, it's certainly been a wild ride for the auto industry and, you know, used car uh, sellers such as CarMax over the last year plus. Uh, you know, the shortage of new vehicles driven to some large extent by supply chain issues and semiconductor shortages has meant that the used car market has become the release valve. And what we've seen more recently is that used car pricing is up nearly 50 percent, according to most recent Mannheim wow. measures. And, uh, you know, we've got supply shortages in, in used cars because uh, there's just so much demand for vehicles today. Yeah. And so... Um, you know, fortunately for a company like CarMax, it's able to source vehicles directly from uh, customers through trade-ins. And, you know, they'll buy their, your car from you even if you don't buy a car from them. They, they've had a, a, a proprietary source of supply for these used vehicles. And so they've, to some large extent, been able to um, better match their supply with the demand they're seeing. And that's translated into really good results for them. But, yes, this is a transitory issue that should shake out over the next several quarters. I have a 2013 and a 2020 car sitting downstairs in the garage. Both are going for used more than I paid for them. <laughs> so uh, it's pretty crazy um, to look at these prices. What about uh, RH, Restoration Hardware? Why the furniture, uh, high-end furniture retailer? Well, RH is, uh, again, a little bit like CarMax. It's, it's got a very different business model in a fairly staid industry. Um, they are opening uh, design galleries, which are really large, impressive showcases for their assortment of products. And it is um, both a direct uh, economic opportunity for them. They could double their sales and nearly triple their profits when they close an old small mall-based store and open a large design gallery, um, but it's also elevating the brand, and RH is striving to become kind of an um, unprecedented uh, luxury brand in the home furnishing space, and heretofore, that's not been something that has been done, and so RH is trying to elevate themselves to luxury status, which would come with luxury margins and luxury returns on equity and capital. And they've done very well so far uh, on that path. Um, highest margins in the industry by nearly two yep. times. And they've got a lot more room to go opening up these design galleries across the country. We think they can yep. more than double their U.S. stores through this process. And then they've got a global opportunity beyond. Brian McCauley from Hennessy Focus Fund. Thanks for joining us. This is Bloomberg. I promised you a story on private equity offering high net worth individuals riskier loans. Obviously, um, you know, with more risk, you expect more reward. Olivia Raimond wrote the story with Heather Perlberg. And Olivia, what, what are we talking about here? Um, how risky and what kind of returns? Yeah, for sure. You know, thank you for having me on. 
The thing with private credit, um, and that's where these investments are in there within the uh, uh, private credit market, loans to middle market companies, um, it's extremely opaque market. A lot of the loans are not subject to ratings by credit graders. And before the pandemic, there was a lot of concern about how the asset class would hold up in a downturn. At the same time, these the market is really a liquid. Uh, lenders typically hold these loans for the maturity of the loan, and they don't really trade on the secondary market. So you can't, an investor can't pull their money out in a pinch, like with a stock or a bond. Um, but that being said, some of these annualized returns are surpassing 8%. So that looks pretty attractive when um, you're looking at what yields are globally right now. Olivia, how much, how far do you think these PE firms are looking to go out on the risk curve? I mean, when, you, when you're talking about some of these leverage loans, you can get some leverage on a net debt, the EBITDA of four, five, six times, which you know can be really challenging if you, if you go into an economic downturn like we experienced in 2020. How much risk do you think they're willing to take? It's a very good point. There's actually a recent report that just came out that leverage levels within the private credit market have remained relatively stable through the pandemic, but you are still talking, like you said, around four to five times. And when you're looking at the upper middle market um, where the loans are surpassing $1 billion, we've heard of deals that are getting done with eight times of leverage. So there, there is risk there. Right now, the default level in middle market companies has dropped to a three-year low. That's data from uh, advisory firm Lincoln International. And um, so, so, so the risk has abated right now, but that's also been bolstered by all the fiscal and monetary policy that's been flooded into the economy right now. So there's always going to be risk with these loans. And obviously, the more debt that you tack on and, and the more leverage, the riskier they're going to be. And it would, I mean, it would strike me that, you know, if it was a more risk-free scenario or a better return scenario, institutions would be getting this. If they're shopping it around to, you know, individuals, as sophisticated as they may be, that's got to be a concern. Well, so it's interesting. So actually, these are products that traditionally have only gone to institutions. So institutional investors have been the primary investor within private credit, endowment funds, pension funds. Now what private equity is trying to do is they're trying to tap this new pool of investors. Previously, retail wasn't allowed into these funds, partly because of the risk. And now they're lowering the bar and offering it for high net worth individuals. I guess you could say the one concern or critique is, is that some firms allocate the retail investors' money to the same funds that the institutions have access to. So they're, they're receiving investments and returns from the same portfolios, whereas others have wrapped up the funds specifically targeting retail only, um, and the portfolio, portfolio, excuse me, obviously looks different. So the concern there is, you know, why, why is the retail client getting um, a portfolio that the institutions aren't. Um, but that's not for every fund, and they, and they really do vary in structure. Hey, Olivia, thank you so much for joining us. We really appreciate getting your thoughts on this story. Olivia Raymond, private credit reporter uh, for Bloomberg News and a Penn State grad. There's a lot of Penn State people we've had on the show the past a couple of days. They're all over the place. Uh, so we appreciate getting Olivia's report. Again, private equity firms want rich investors to embrace Second risky Second Penn credit. State grad we've had in this program, by the way. Yeah, I mean, they're, uh, they're all because over the place. Because Adamant 
Oh, yep. drum also, I think, is a Penn State He got guy. his Ph.D. at uh, Penn State. I wrote a lot of tuition checks to Penn State, so I have a vested interest there. But not there. for him or Olivia. Yeah, no, exactly. So we're all set. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Matt Miller. I'm on Twitter at MattMiller1973. And I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at P.T. Sweeney. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide at Bloomberg Radio.